Welcome to The Accountant Quits, brought to you by Request Finance, an all-in-one platform for crypto organizations and freelancers to easily manage and track their invoices, salaries, and expenses in a compliant way. On this podcast, we discuss how blockchain will impact the accounting profession and how accountants should prepare themselves for the future of work. My name's Umar, your host, and even if some might refer to me as The Accountant Gone Rogue, My job is to provide you with the blockchain knowledge you need that will be relevant for the accounting industry as a whole. Welcome to episode 36. If you have the intention to run your business on crypto, the traditional back office operation stack won't make the cut. Your current processes around your invoicing and payments, accounting and reporting, tax compliance and treasury management requires an overhaul to remain compliant and mitigate the risk involved. The transition to having crypto on your balance sheet thus requires establishing a new workflow for running your operations and getting your team upskilled. To discuss how companies can redesign and thrive in the era of digital assets, I have the pleasure today to speak to Pat White, the CEO and founder of Bitwave. Bitwave empowers enterprises to streamline all of their back office operations and remain compliant by providing a platform for their bookkeeping, treasury management, accounts receivable and accounts payable tooling, and DeFi support. Bitwave also recently held their first ever Digital Assets Enterprises Summit in Austin to discuss the unique challenges organizations deal with when transacting in cryptocurrencies. In this episode today you will learn the different reasons businesses are adopting crypto today, a framework to adopt and reap the benefits of using crypto, considerations to have when transitioning to crypto from a compliance perspective, Bitwave's approach to help companies manage their back office crypto operations, and how to upskill your back office team with crypto. Pat, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited as well. I didn't even realize we've been mentioning EDAS, but in the next few weeks, we'll be announcing our 23 EDAS. And Umar, we'll have to have you there to live podcast it. We'll get you there to do interviews and stuff like that. I'd love to do it, man. (laughs) Cool. So to start the episode, could you tell us a little bit more about your personal background, Pat? How you first became interested with blockchain and share the story of how and why you founded Bit? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is actually enterprise software. So it's something that's a little bit interesting about Bitwave is, you know, our, the primary product and sort of our first product that we have is designed for, is exactly what we're going to talk about today. It's tax accounting and enablement for businesses. But honestly, we actually didn't get into this business necessarily to focus on accounting. We actually got into focus on enabling digital assets for enterprises. So my entire background is enterprise software. I started my career. I graduated from USC as a computer engineer. I started my career at Microsoft. I've been at Microsoft, Cisco, Fortify, Five9, Intuit, a few other companies. Did a long stint doing enterprise CRM and ERP implementation consulting. So I have this like really deep enterprise software background. And I and honestly, I love enterprise software. It's one of those really funny things. Like there are two different types of people in the world when it comes to this stuff. You know, there are people who like high volume, low margin kind of software that is, you know, bring as many people onto your platform as possible and that's it. And then there's people that really enjoy the craftsmanship of engineering and like building tooling with customers, working on bigger deal sizes that are really complicated, like really complicated deals with 
weird roll-ups and all that kind of stuff. We'll talk about that a little bit later today, but you know, one of our customers does 40 million transactions a year that you can't do that in normal accounting systems, right? Like you have to build something that can handle 40 million transactions a year or more. And so that's, you know, we got into this because we posed the question, my co-founder and I, we posed the question to ourselves, you know, what problems will businesses have around crypto? And then we just started burning down all the different problems that we think businesses are going to have around crypto. Tax and accounting are number one. ARAP is number two. Treasury management is number three. Financial operations, FP&A, like everything that sort of flows after that is five, six, seven, eight. And that's how we kind of approach it is like, how do we build the tooling that helps these businesses get into it? So my foray, I actually, I don't know if it's, in, it's a claim to fame or not, but I did, I actually got Satoshi's white paper delivered in my inbox. Like when I worked at Fortify, yeah, I was a product manager that was on a soft security product and I was in all of the mailing lists, like every different mailing list for security you can imagine, including the cryptography ones. Because one of the things we did was monitor for cryptography issues. And so I got Satoshi's white paper delivered to my inbox. I immediately loved it because I'm a computer scientist really first and foremost. So it was a very, very clever solution to a very difficult computer science problem, Byzantine General's problem, if you, if you ever read the white paper, which was spectacular. I mean, it was a really, really clever way of addressing this particularly hard problem. So I loved it right away. I did a little bit of mining. I have some code contributors and the core nodes out there. And I just, you know, I just enjoyed it. Like it was fun getting to crypto. It was a fun hobbyist project. But when I looked, when I was getting into it in like 2009, 2010, there was not really a lot of enterprise software around crypto, right? You know, I, what I always sort of say is like, because I like enterprise software, if I wanted to create like an enterprise software at that time, probably the only option would have been a custodian. And like, I don't know if you remember this, but like, this was when like Zappo was around and Zappo had bought a bunker in Switzerland. They literally bought a mountain in Switzerland and they had airlocks and armed guards and like custodianship was nuts. <laughs> and so like, I've done a lot of my life to make sure that I don't have armed guards around me at any point in my life. And so custodianship was not particularly interesting back then. So anyway, so I sort of sat on it for a while and then 2017, 2018 rolled around, there were businesses getting serious about digital assets, like real businesses doing real stuff with digital assets. And it just sort of seemed like the right time to finally go and start BitWave. The title of the episode today is Institutional Adoption of Digital Assets and Compliance. Why don't we start by the different reasons why companies with slightly different profiles have been adopting crypto over the past month? Some view crypto as a hedge against inflation, and they're only holding onto those assets in their treasury. Some are actually accepting crypto as a method of payment and earning their revenue in crypto. Yeah, I think, yeah. And what I think about crypto in general is crypto is very use case driven. You know, what happens when you're deep in the, the crypto ecosystem and you get into these really pitched religious wars between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum and Dash and like, you have all the various communities that are kind of fighting these pitch battles. I think that everything about crypto really comes down to the use case you're trying to solve for, which is also, it's kind of one of those funny things. Like when I look at the Bitcoin Cash community, they're a kind of a, I actually like Bitcoin Cash. I think it's a super interesting application for the technology. The problem is they've sort of taken this approach in general that they want to be all things for all people. They want to have a smart contract platform. They want to have the spendability. They want to have the deflationary aspect that Bitcoin has. So they're trying to be everything. And by doing that, you end up in a situation where you're not really the best of anything for anybody. And so that's like, that's always how I evaluate cryptocurrencies. Like when I'm looking at a new crypto or something like that, I evaluate like what use case they're trying to solve. Is it Ethereum where they're trying to solve really complex smart contract use cases, things like that. 
So the same goes for enterprises. Like there are different reasons that enterprises get into digital assets. MicroStrategy got into it because Michael Saylor hates the Federal Reserve, right? That that's he does not trust the Federal Reserve to be a good steward of the U.S. dollar. He believes that, and I guess rightly so. I mean, we look at where we are today with eight percent inflation. Like he was certainly right on inflation, although it's yet to be seen if he was right about Bitcoin as a deflationary as an inflationary hedge. But that's why MicroStrategy did this. They thought it was a good idea. They thought it was a good investment, and they bought a bunch of Bitcoin as an inflationary hedge. And I think they've done relatively well on their investment. Like they've had to take a big impairment expense, but they've done relatively well on a pure cash basis on their investment. Someone like Tesla, they got into it. I would argue it was for the publicity. I mean, honestly, like I, Tesla was never really serious about crypto. I don't think that Elon had a particularly coherent long-term strategy considering he like brought it on, let it go, brought it on, canceled this, like took crypto, didn't take crypto, took Dogecoin. It's just, the whole thing was just, it all struck me as like publicity, as a kind of a publicity stunt. And that's totally fine. I mean, you know, the world is full of publicity stunts. So that's reasonable. But then when you start getting to really exciting people, it's like Stripe, you know, Stripe, Visa, MasterCard, those guys all have crypto on their books. And that's because they're all terrified about what a payments network, what a world looks like with a peer-to-peer payments network there's probably has been no larger existential threat to those companies than crypto. There's really a world where from your phone, you can buy anything. And as we get more into DeFi, you can even do it on credit. I mean, there's absolutely no reason that you can't have credit cards on crypto. We haven't done it yet, but it's, it, it'll be there. I mean, it's absolutely going to be there. Basically like a revolving, a credit line where you can send money directly off of a vault that automatically takes collateral. I mean, like that will get there eventually. So the idea of if I'm Visa and I'm looking at this, you know, the way I tend to think about this is that they are in a very precarious position because they have this 3% stranglehold on so much of the financial world right now, right? That is like their stranglehold on the world. And there's a paradigm coming that could basically cut them out entirely. And everyone like suddenly pays 3% less. And it's interesting because like up to this point, we've really been focused, like Visa makes their money or Visa like has their cachet because they do their points. And so people love paying with a Visa card because they get their travel points. But like everything's so expensive right now that a world where you save everyone 3% by moving to payments like this is really compelling. So you look at someone like Visa, Stripe, MasterCard, all those guys, they're terrified of a payments, of a world where the payments rails are all on chain. And they basically need to understand if they can, if they can compete. Now it's going to be very difficult for them to compete because of sort of a classic innovator's dilemma problem. But because they mean, essentially, they have to blow up their own business to compete, right? Like if you're a visa, you more or less have to start to dismantle your 3% margins and get that down to half a percent and lay off a bunch of people and change your infrastructure in order to reasonably compete with crypto or a Web3 native company doing this. But if they can do it, they'll, they mean, they have the money to do it. It's just that they have the ambition. So different people get into it for different reasons. You know, you see more people like, GameStop obviously has their NFT marketplace. So they got into it as a revenue play because, you know, a GameStop's again, another really interesting use case here from the outside because GameStop, you know, they look at a world where Xbox has their store, PlayStation has their digital store. Where does that leave GameStop? So GameStop really had to figure out a way to create a digital store that would engage with gamers. And that could be licensing for games. That could be anything else like that. So that pulled them into it. Missiles are a tool. Like rockets are a tool. They either drive a missile or they take you to the moon. You know, crypto is a tool. It can be used for nefarious purposes like tornado cash, although that's very, very debatable. Or it could be used for things like enabling enabling new business models for companies that are worried about their current business models and need to have new ways to approach this stuff. 
So that's why different businesses are getting into it. Last thing I'll mention would be NFTs. You know, we're seeing a lot of companies get into NFTs more than I actually expected. To be super honest, if you had asked me five years ago, what is it that's going to bring enterprises to digital assets? I would have said marginal efficiencies around supply chain. I would have said that people are going to look at their supply chain and realize that they can fire 100 people out of their ARAP department and move to these like smart contract based automated built like solutions. Walmart saves half a percent on their supply chain. That's $5 billion, right? Like that's what I thought would bring people to crypto. What's actually brought people like the big companies of crypto is like Nike. You know, Nike is now engaging with people in the metaverse because their super fans are going to the metaverse. And that doesn't mean that they're going necessarily to like Sandbox or any of those VR things, but they are the personas that they are projecting in the metaverse, which I kind of include Twitter in the metaverse. I know that that's not a very common way of thinking about it, but it's how I like to think about it, which is like the metaverse is any place online where you're projecting an identity that really is not who you are if you and I met at a bar and had a beer. And so that's like, that covers all of this. That covers LinkedIn, that covers Facebook, that covers Twitter, that covers Discord, that covers Reddit. Because all of these things are projections of yourself that you have scrubbed to appeal to that particular audience. You know, so that's the uptick of net of NFTs on Twitter. You know, people think it's dumb and things like that. And that's fine. Like, it doesn't really matter. If you think it's dumb, the person who has a board ape as their, as their profile is not doing it for you, right? They're doing it for the people that know what board ape is. In the same way that a guy walking down the street with a Supreme sweatshirt is not doing that for you if you don't know who Supreme is, they're doing it for the people who know who Supreme is. And so more and more enterprises are finding their super fans are in the metaverse, are projecting these things, and they want to bring along their fandom. So an NFT of a Nike, an NFT of a board ape wearing a pair of Nike sneakers is projecting two sets of super fandom. It's projecting an NFT board ape fandom. It's projecting a Nike fandom. And we're going to see more and more of that. So that's why the big brands are really getting involved in crypto and the metaverse in general. Next, I'd like to speak about the digital assets maturity model crafted by Bitwave. So this is a model I came across and it's a model for the listeners. It involves setting up all your back office operations on crypto and having a strategy and different internal controls and workflows on the different verticals I mentioned in the intro. Before we go into what Bitwave does, could you provide the listeners with the condensed insight into this model around the different levels you've crafted for this model? Yeah, absolutely. So if anyone's interested, www.bitwave.io slash D-A-M-M, digital asset maturity model, and you can download it. It's a great read. It's about 25 pages. The idea is that enterprises getting into this, there are a lot of unknown, unknown problems. Like, I don't think that if you get into digital assets as an enterprise, you understand that you have to get a board resolution that's going to allow you to do that. You might not understand that you might suddenly have a thousand wallets across your organization that Treasury needs to monitor with a fiduciary duty slant. So this is the most difficult thing I can kind of imagine here is that you really need, like, if you are not used to this, one way that I tend to put this is that basically every single person in the CFO stack is impacted by digital assets. You know, every single part of the CFO, from the controller to the tax, FP&A, financial operations, audit, everyone's impacted by digital assets. But if you have just like, if it's your product team that's doing the work, they are not necessarily going to the CFO and explaining this full impact. So a lot of how we think about this is like, look at, we're going to give you a, a platform where you day one is like someone in your organization just bought digital assets. What do you do day one? What do you do day two? What do you do day 10? You know, the way that we sort of structure the, the maturity model starts with 
someone has pulled us into this mess, right? Someone bought digital assets and we as the, the finance team have to kind of deal with it. Step two is, oh, you know, digital assets are actually pretty cool. I wonder if we could streamline our ARAP processes. I wonder if we could streamline our billing or collections. Like, is there anything that we could streamline around that? Step three is like, okay, you know, we're going to rework our product lines. So instead of actually, you know, if we are eBay, instead of doing everything through credit cards, let's start offering on-chain marketplaces and actually start to see a real revenue stream coming off of digital assets. And then step four is, okay, we're now sitting on a lot of digital assets. How do we revamp the whole finance team to start to do things like, you know, borrow money off the blockchain, issue debt, you know, bonds, debt on the blockchain, go into liquidity pools. It's this idea of, you know, you're starting with like just dipping your toe in and then you're getting into like this idea of, of how do we adapt current business processes to digital assets? Then next is how do we create new business processes because of digital assets? And then finally, it's like, how do we entirely rethink our finance team because of digital assets? That's the high level of the maturity model. And there's a lot of like different considerations that you have to worry about between point A and point B there. <laughs> now, let's say I'm a CFO of an entity and I'm pushing for the company I'm working for to start using crypto. I've obtained the green light from the board of directors that I can do it. Now, if I need to put crypto onto my general ledger and subsequently onto my balance sheet, this requires an overhaul of all the current workflows and processes. I've heard you mention before, cryptocurrency transaction is both an accounting and taxable transaction. So what should be, let's say if I had to devise a project plan and prioritize and allocate my resources to run my business on crypto, let's say in the next 30 days. What would be like the first step I would need to take and how to prioritize this? Yeah. So step one is, and this we talk about this in the maturity model, is get a tiger team together that cuts across the CFO org, right? So we've seen this where it's like just the tax team has decided to take on crypto entirely. And that's going to end up as a disaster. Like everyone's going to hate them. It's going to be a disaster. They're not going to get the right tooling for it. Like it will be very, very difficult. So step one before you do anything else is basically bring together controller, tax, potentially fp a if you're going to have revenue from it, and then potentially your operations team, because they're going to be the ones with the keys and they need to have the full view of the visibility into all the different wallets. So bring that Tiger team together and start understanding what, like start basically educating them about the different things that they're going to have. The majority of, of work does fall on the accounting team. So the accounting team is there, like the way that we build Bitwave in particular is very bookkeeper centric. Like our assumption is that we're going to build a bookkeeper tool the bookkeeper will go through and do all the book cost type work. So they're going to do the book cost of revenue. So what is the cost basis, fair market value of the revenue that comes in, which essentially sets the book cost for that particular inventory item? What is the book cost, anything that we spend? So when we spend expenses in digital assets, the bookkeeping team is ultimately responsible for basically selecting a transaction in the Bitwave UI saying, okay, this is an expense. Here's the fair market value. We suggest a fair market value, but you have to kind of approve it and accept it. And at that point, the accounting team has sort of created that base ledger that then is going to get projected into a U.S. gap ledger, into a tax ledger, into a management reporting ledger, into a DeFi ledger. You're basically creating, you have one person who's doing the heavy lift of creating that base ledger that then pushes everything else out to everybody else. So that's like the high level of day one is get everyone on the same page, get everyone to understand the impact they're going to have, pick a software solution like Bitwave pick Bitwave, and then make sure that you have your bookkeepers trained up to begin to do it because they are the heart, soul, and core of any processes that are happy around digital assets. Before we continue, we'll take a quick commercial break from our sponsor. 
As a freelancer, Request Finance has been a game changer in how I invoice my clients and receive stablecoins and crypto directly in my wallet. Previously, I would be preparing my invoice in a spreadsheet, copy and paste my wallet address and save it as a PDF. My client would have to manually pay my invoice and reconciling those transactions was a tedious task for me. Now with Request Finance, I can create professional looking invoices in the currency of my choice, whether a local currency like USD or Euro and be paid in crypto. Request Finance integrates with more than 10 blockchains, including Polygon, Phantom, Near Protocol, and their dashboard allows me to quickly see the status and history of all invoices. The manual reconciliation days is now over. Also, there's no subscription fee to their platform. It's completely free if you're the issuer, and the payer is only charged a 0.1% fee on the amount of your invoice and capped at $2 per invoice. Yeah, it's ridiculously cheap. And Request Finance is not just for freelancers. Leading blockchain projects like The Sandbox, Aave, The Graph, MakerDAO are also using their platform to manage their payments, payroll, expenses, and accounting. But hey, don't take my word for it. Try it out for yourself. Create your first immutable crypto invoice now by visiting request.finance and for a limited period of time, you can earn $10 in REC tokens when you sign up using promo link at theaccountantquits.com slash requests. Get paid easy in crypto. Sign up now at theaccountantquits.com slash request. And can you tell us a little bit more about Bitwave and how today you help organizations run their back office with crypto? Also, some use cases about the kind of clients that you have today and how they actually use in Bitwave? Yeah, absolutely. So Bitwave, it's a full stack CFO solution for digital assets and enterprises. Part of that includes bringing in general ledger. It's a full tax and accounting sub ledger. So that means that today we will integrate with the blockchain and then push that through into your accounting system. A big part of our philosophy is we don't want to replace any current processes, accounting systems or anything like that. So like, this is not a new general ledger that's crypto only, like, because I mean, at least the way we look at the world is that for the next few years, almost every company has to have a bank account. We may get to the point at some point where you really could have a fully segmented general ledger product just for Web3 companies with no bank accounts. But, you know, till every government in the world is taking crypto, businesses are going to have to have bank accounts. It's just the absolute base necessity of it. So what Bitwave does is basically bridges the gap from all of the digital asset sources into your primary ledger. So essentially we have connections into Bitcoin, into Dash, into Ethereum. We have connections into exchanges like Kraken, Gemini, all of those connections into custodians, Fireblocks, Anchorage, you name the custodian, we connect with it. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring all your data together, kind of like a bank fee. I mean, I sort of say that in a facetious way, because it's like a very, very complicated bank fee, but that's ultimately what it is, is that we're going out to all these other places. We're creating the, we are pulling all the data together to view it as a bank fee that then enables you to categorize it. We pull in your full chart of accounts, your full, all your invoices, bills, everything you possibly need from your accounting system gets pulled into your, uh, into a uh, Bitwave here. And then we let you categorize everything. And as part of the categorization, you are basically doing a fair market valuation. So part of that is that we actually have a really powerful pricing engine. So depending on your requirements to follow US GAAP or your requirements from the IRS, you can set up incredibly complex pricing rules that says like for this asset, for this time period, go to this source, for this asset during this time period, use this hard-coded price. We actually enable that entire set of use cases. It's actually really, really cool. 
And then you go through, you do your categorization. We have an automatic two-way sync with QuickBooks. So as you save transactions, it pushes into QuickBooks and then you're basically done. I mean, we have, you know, closing periods and all that sort of stuff you'd expect from it, but it is a overall process of how you kind of manage a full subledger. And then the coolest part that we do is that our subledger really exists as a series of like a base ledger with a series of adjustments on top of it. So that if you're just sort of a private company and all you care about is your subledger and then your tax adjustments, you can do that. All the numbers are the same. It's really easy to tie that all out. If you're a Fortune 500 company that maintains a separate accounting ledger, a US GAAP ledger, a management reporting ledger, a tax ledger, we also can support that kind of a workflow. So we can basically, within the one system, you as the bookkeeper do the one set of categorization, that then gets projected into US GAAP with impairment into taxes with realized gains and losses off of original cost basis, all that sort of stuff. So BitWave sits right in the middle. And some of the new stuff we have, you know, abilities to pay bills directly out of BitWave. And this is like some of the stuff that's like really getting exciting. Like we are, we're in this phase right now where we have, you know, a really like the by far market leading and best solution for kind of the accounting components. And then what we're starting to overlay on that now is all of the operations pieces. So going and paying bills, if you get a crypto bill, we can accrue a crypto token based liability in BitWave. You can then age it. You can then market to market, and then you can open up the financial ops product and actually pay it. It is kind of a whole, like an entire suite of solutions around this. And the whole time it's going to be integrated with your GL. So the day that you pick up that liability, we push that invoice into NetSuite, QuickBooks, you know, Sage Intact, Oracle Fusion, whatever. The day you pay it, we push in the actual invoice payment along with a Forex adjustment. So it's just, it's the whole idea for us is to like any work process that you might have, we're going to enable through BitWave for digital assets. I mean, we have customers doing all this kind of stuff. One other customer type that I'll mention that is actually really, really interesting is I mentioned at the beginning of the pod, but that's, you know, we have customers doing tens of millions or hundreds of millions of transactions a year, just a phenomenal amount of transactions a year. So in that situation, we are doing a lot of work on rollups because there's like no system can handle a hundred, like you can't push a hundred million transactions into NetSuite. Our tax matcher would take like three days to handle gain loss on 100 million transactions. So you have to figure out ways to basically make that, while adhering to gap principles, make that more manageable. So we can do a one-day roll-up or a one-hour roll-up where we'll look at all your transactions over one, one hour. We'll roll up all of the revenue for that one-hour period. We'll book it as a single line item. We keep all the records in our data warehouse in the back end. So you have full auditability. We've done full audits with all of the big four at this point. But then, then have a manageable, you're pushing in, you know, whatever it is, 24 transactions a day into NetSuite, as opposed to 100 million or whatever, a million transactions a day. And that's, it's just ways like that. Like we tend to think about this as space in terms of scalability. That's the end all be all of it is that we think about scalability more than anyone else because our customers care about scalability. Like our customers are doing hundreds of millions of transactions a year. We have to be able to handle that. It's really fun. <laughs> it's a really fun technical challenge. I always talk about that. <laughs> And a follow-up question I have on this is for business founders and CEOs listening, how much crypto operations do I need to have? And at what point would it make sense for me to use BitWave? I mean, if I'm just holding on to crypto and I'm just reporting that at the end of the year, would that make sense? Or I need to be actively transacting in crypto to come to BitWave? If you are an individual that just bought some crypto and you're going to sell it, you don't need BitWave. You know, you can even just use TurboTax and, and imports for that. If you are a, a family office, you know, a hedge fund, a family office, you bought some crypto, you're going to hold it and sell it. You don't, you don't necessarily need BitWave. If you are a business and you are kind of running the steps of the maturity model where you're going to buy a little bit today to understand how it impacts your books, 
because you think that in a year, you actually will have significant transaction volume in digital assets. That's when you do want to get, when you want to get bit with. And then obviously, if you are a business that is paying people in digital assets that has expenses, like if you have expenses, you want to write off in digital assets, you know, like gas fees are not cheap. <laughs> so if you are paying a lot of gas fees, you need to make sure that you are accounting for that correctly and able to write that off and report it correctly on your assets. So anyone that has any revenue in digital assets, any expenses in digital assets, and then anyone who really expects over the next year or two, pick up expenses or revenue in digital assets, that's when you need BitWave. And that's who we, we talk to all the time. <laughs> I also want to ask you, what are some of the considerations to have in mind when transitioning from fiat payments to crypto payments on a compliance perspective and both for the business that is billing for services in crypto and also for the employee who wants to start accepting their salaries in crypto? Sure. So the two questions are one about employees and paying employees in crypto and the other one about like payments, AR, ARAP in crypto. The main consideration for ARAP in crypto is that it is a, you have to treat it like Forex, right? So if you pick up an AR in crypto, you have to market to market or impair it depending on your, the guidance that you get. A lot of people have done the ASC 849. I think I got that wrong. There's a derivative analysis treatment that basically people are treating crypto invoices as a derivative, which means they're market to market as opposed to impairing it. I think hopefully we'll get some additional guidance on that at some point, because it seems like if you're impairing digital assets, you should also be impairing the invoices, the receivables for digital assets, but neither here nor there. But essentially, like you will have a Forex drift, right? And this is not like regular Forex where you have a penny up or down a day, right? This is crypto where a receivable yesterday could be worth 5,000 less today. A token-based receivable yesterday could be worth 5,000 less today. So think deeply about that. Are you accepting payment in crypto for USD denominated invoices, or are you creating token denominated invoices and accepting payment in tokens, in which case you really have, that's when you have to really use something like that way, because we do all the tracking of the token-based liabilities, all the mark-to-market, all that kind of stuff. So that's sort of the first thing to think about is just like, are you just accepting crypto for USD payments? Or do you imagine a world where you actually might have to pick up receivables? That happens more than you'd expect. Like a lot of our NFT companies, what they do, what their auditors have advised them to do is scan the blockchain. Like we, we keep a full record of all blockchain NFT sales. So what we would do is we would actually scan the blockchain to create a receivable based on all of the sales for that particular user so that when that gets settled at the end of the month, different, different marketplaces work different ways, but one of them sends out payments on a monthly basis. When they actually create a receivable that is accruing over the entire course of that month, that then get settled sometimes after. And they can have very significant deltas on their Forex. I mean, you know, because if you like, if you imagine from the first of, what was the month, April? Like the first of April to the end of April was a $3,000 swing for Ethereum. That is a real hit to your PL and to your Forex gain loss. So that's the first thing to really think about is like, just think, are you, is it token-based receivables or is it actually USD that you're just gonna take crypto for? If you're an employee taking it, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's certainly possible. We pay some of our employees in crypto. We reimburse expenses in crypto. I love using crypto for things because that's, we believe in it. Like that's like a big part of it. I'd ask like why you're doing it in some ways. Like I think we are going to see a lot of really interesting stuff coming out over the next few years that is very employee friendly based on crypto. So the things that I think about all the time is I like, yeah, it'd be cool to get paid in Ethereum, but, you know, most of my bills are still in USD. So like, you know, I don't get paid a lot in Ethereum. I do uh, reimburse myself in expenses with Ethereum sometimes, but that's like, less it. 
But let's say the other side of this is like, if we get to a world where we have real streaming payroll, you know, streaming payroll where every single block of the blockchain, a little bit of my payroll that's due to me for that period is released to me. Boy, I would love that. You know, I always have reasons I need money. Like everyone has reasons you need, you need money. So that's the stuff that we're really waiting for before, before we think we're going to see serious uptake in payroll for crypto. We actually think there's going to be a new set of infrastructure layers that are doing kind of the next generation stuff. Because like we're so much in this phase right now where crypto is, we're basically taking the old model of, well, the example I use sometimes is like Yahoo, when Yahoo was first invented, right? Yahoo for web one, they had this idea where they're like, hey, yellow pages were really cool. What if we did a yellow page for the internet? And honestly, for a little while, that worked really well. Like they became a big company. It was a great thing. And then Google came by and they're like, guys, like this is insane. Like you can't do a yellow page for a trillion web pages. <laughs> like that doesn't work and you can't curate it. And so then Yahoo just got, you know, stomped out of existence because they didn't adapt to it. So I sort of feel like we're in this phase right now where a lot of people are trying to adapt current web, current like payment models, like invoicing. And they're trying to move from T3 to T0 settlement on using blockchain. But that's not Google. That's not the Google of this world. The Google of this world is totally new payment models that are based on smart contracts where funds are slowly getting released to you. But then you can actually like latch on a Klarna smart contract that'll basically take a small portion of your streaming payroll and shunt it over to somebody else and you can borrow money against it. Like that's the world that's coming down the pike and that's what's going to change the world. So where we are today is all fun and games, but the next couple of years are going to be incredible for this stuff. Earlier this year, Bitwave hosted the Enterprise Digital Asset Summit, where you had members from the AICPA. For people who don't know, it's the American Institute for CPAs. They develop guidance for accounting and financial reporting. The lack of guidance on accounting standard at this point means recognizing and the subsequent measurement of digital assets remains somehow subjective. And I know the AICPA is working a lot to bring more clarity and guidance there. But I want to ask you if at this point, based on the clients and how the industry has been, let's say, accepting crypto, is that a bottleneck today? And for you, where would you like the AICPA to publish more guidance today? The AICPA has been an interesting kind of like component of the overall crypto journey today. There are some things that are still... You know, I think one of the places that I think is going to be really interesting, like, you know, impairment is one of the U.S. gap models for this. That sort of, it wasn't even the AICPA. It was really the big four got together, wrote a white paper in whatever, 2013. They kind of led to intangible asset treatment for digital assets. I think where we are today, I don't think we'll back off of that entirely. I think that you will always have a world where you are doing intangible asset treatment for some of the long tail digital assets because they are super weird. <laughs> like, I think that that's sort of the nature of this. But I do think that we should be moving off of it for Bitcoin and Ethereum. Like, I think for the major the major digital assets, we should be moving off of it. I think that sort of guidance needs to come from the AICPA, USDC, stablecoin guidance as well. Like, we have a lot of customers who have a lot of different opinions about whether or not they should be booking USDC as a cash equivalent or not. Like, these are big questions that no one really wants to take stances on. And that's fine, but that just, I mean, it's kind of silly because it gives, it actually gives a lot of air cover to the, to the different accounting, to the different accountants doing this. Like if no one will tell you what to do, you make a best effort, you know, at best judgment and you roll with it. And then the worst case is that you have to switch a couple of years from now, but you know, that's the way that these guidelines work. No one's going to really have to do it retroactively. So I think that there's, we're all just doing ourselves a great disservice by leaving this all up in the air around the ambiguity there. 
the biggest one, honestly, the, the biggest like black hole in all this today is DeFi. DeFi is incredibly poorly understood by the AICPA. There's no guidance they've given about what going into liquidity pool looks like. And even to the extent, like there's stuff that really bugs me. And so like there's stuff that bugs me in the industry today in a really funny way. Like one of the things that we see a lot, it's really, really interesting is if you are going from an L1 to an L2 with, let's say like USDC, there is a lot of debate about whether or not that is a taxable event. Like is the token, is USDC on Ethereum the same or different than USDC on Polygon? Tons of debate around there. What is oddly less debated, which is crazy to me because I actually think that that's less of an issue. What is oddly less debated is when you're bridging between chains. Most of the people I talk to day in, day out, when you bridge from ETH to Solana, USDC, they're like, oh yeah, of course that's the same. It absolutely couldn't be further from the truth, right? Like you never pick up a bigger risk than when you bridge from ETH to Solana for USDC. All the wormhole hacks have proved that. And so it's one of these things like, I just don't, I don't think that people are fully thinking through like crypto is the merging of technical issues, right? Technical solutions, technical questions, technical issues with accounting. And I sometimes worry that like a lot of these, the governing bodies on stuff, they don't actually think deeply through the technical, like what's happening on chain, the technical bits and bytes of what is happening when they're giving their guidance and when they're making adjustments and stuff. And that's sort of like, it's a big issue. So anyways, like it's, we, you know, I think that a lot more guidance has to be given. I think DeFi is like a very, very classic, but you know, if I were to stack rank it, it'd be, you know, bridging and L1, L2s, and then, you know, DeFi, let's start with, let's start with simple things like compound Aave, and then let's get into liquidity pools. And then finally, let's really hammer down this thing to get at least Bitcoin and Ethereum off of intangible assets and into a more reasonable treatment stance, even if we leave, you know, weird long tail coins in that intangible assets. Pat, I'll have a last question for you today, which is around upskilling accountants for crypto accounting. You can be brief on the topic. I want to ask you, what should companies know today about upskilling their accountants? Crypto accounting is complex and should all skills be placed in one basket? I mean, I've recently had Mackenzie on the show speaking about pro-stake accounting. That's like a completely different topic. So accountants need to, I believe, like specialize and maybe focus on different verticals, such as maybe revenue accounting or DeFi accounting, or some would specialize more in like the treasury aspect of it or monthly financial reporting and yearly financial reporting. It's very different to what we have right now for fiat payments. So how not to make it overwhelming for the accounting, because even if blockchain is supposed to make the life of the accountant simple, right now we're very far from there. Yeah. It's really interesting, right? Like at a very high level, it is really, really interesting that essentially there is a lot of specialization in this. We often talk about it like, you know, it's tools like Bitwave that essentially will help upskill bookkeepers. So what Mackenzie talks about this stuff is that essentially crypto is a combination of a bunch of different disciplines of accounting, right? So you have the bookkeeping aspect. If you are going to bring in, you know, one ETH of revenue, that is traditional RevRec, a RevRec accounting, you know, methodology there. And anyone in the world can kind of do that. The problem is, you know, what McKenzie gets into is then the next step is, of course, you have to do taxes. So when you move crypto between two wallets, when you are a bookkeeper making a choice, you are making an accounting decision. You are making a tax decision, right? Because when you say that something's an internal transfer, you are saying, do not count that for tax purposes. That is a very, like, that is a tax decision. 
not all bookkeepers are comfortable making tax decisions like that, right? You know, when you when a tool like Bitwave, the way we tend to think about this is you have to upskill bookkeepers in a couple of directions. You have to upskill them to be able to deal with crazy tokens. Like there are really weird named tokens out there that they have to be able to look at, understand fair market value, and then move on with their life because they don't really care, right? They don't want to learn about whatever this token is. They just want to move on with their life. So you have to upskill them to be able to deal with crypto, but you have to upskill them or at least create a system whereby they are not having to deal with the day-to-day -day hard tax questions. A great example of that is ETH to ETH wrapping. This, by the way, goes back to the other question about the AICPA is another great question would be ETH to ETH wrapping that I'd love to get some like really clear guidance on. ETH to ETH wrapping is, that is a non-taxable event for certain people, but other people think it is a taxable event. So you're asking a bookkeeper to make a very difficult tax decision when they're doing bookkeeping. Like, is this a wrapping action or is this not? Well, the way BitWave approaches this is that we just treat everything like a trade. Anytime you see a transformation between tokens, you just, you as the bookkeeper just call it a trade and you move on with your life. The tax team can then come along behind you and actually set up wrapping treatments for different coins. They can say this coin to this coin is a wrapping treatment. This coin to this coin isn't like yada, yada, yada. So the idea is to sort of separate that out and like make the bookkeeper's life easy. They just have one treatment. The tax team's life easy. They have to go and do the actual hard heavy lift there. That's part of it is just making their life a little bit easier and all that kind of stuff around it. Pat, the time has flown really fast. The way I like to end my episode is ask my guests whether they have a favorite quote or a maxim that they live by. Do you have one? I, it's, you, you know, it's funny. I probably do have a few that I kind of tend to live by. I'd say the biggest one, and it come, this is sort of like coming from a startup founder. This was a quote my aunt used to always say. So my aunt was also in IT. And she did like project management for like large scale ERP implementations, actually. And she used to always just say like, we are where we are. And that's, it's kind of this idea that like, you know, different people have different responses to things going wrong. And at the end of the day, like, you know, my general philosophy on all this is that like things go wrong all the time. Like the world is an imperfect place. Human beings are imperfect. Like things go wrong literally all the time. It is just a part of human, of the human experience. And you can either get really upset and yell and scratch and scream and shout, or you can sort of just say, acknowledge that you know, we are where we are, we need to move on. That doesn't mean you ignore mistakes. You do retrospectives, you fire people if they keep making them, but it is this idea that you, know, you need sort of you know, acknowledge that like, when a mistake happens, when something happens, you, there's a line to stand at that point. You gotta like move forward from there, fix it later, but move forward. A lot of it, like I, I do, like in my, a lot of my jobs, I've been responsible for like on-call duties for technical stuff. And like, there's this thing where you, sometimes you get on these on-call, like the servers are all crashing, the internet's on fire, and people just want to blame each other. And it's like, guys, like, we don't have time for that. Like, we have all the servers are on fire. Like, let's actually go and do something right now. And then we'll deal with it after the fact. So that's, that's my main quote that I really live by is like, we are where we are. Just sort of understand that position, learn from it, but really don't hold blood grudges. It's funny because it's one that I also live by is to love your fate and that you control how you play and you don't control what happens to you. Pat, this has been great having you today. I really enjoyed the episode. Before we go, if people want to reach out to you, learn more about Bitwave, how should they do so? Of course, www.bitwave.io. You can email someone that will reply to you, info at bitwave.io. And if you need to talk to me directly, I am pat.white at bitwave.io. I'm also at Pat White on Twitter, although I, I don't know if I really use it, but I'm on Pat, I'm Pat White on LinkedIn. That one, I probably post on LinkedIn a little bit more. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks a lot, Pat. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. 
I would like to thank everyone for listening to this episode. You will find all the links of the episode, show notes and transcript on the website of The Accountant Quits at theaccountantquits.com. Please note that this content is for general information purposes only and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. If you do know anyone who could benefit from the episode and you care about them, please do share the episode with them. All the episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And by leaving us a review and rating, you will support the channel and all your fellow accountants. In order to be notified each time we release a new episode, do follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. We hope to have you with us next time. Bye for now.